0: Hi everyone and welcome to Bad Apple. I'm Helen and I'm Riley and on today's episode we're talking about two interestingly similar John Doe cases from Australia. If you've been listening to the pod in our 40 plus episodes we've only covered one other John Jane Doe case which is essentially a unidentified person's case.
1: Yeah, kind of like the flip side of a missing person's case. Yeah. Because you're they're missing and you don't know where they are. But these people are found, but you just don't know who they are.
0: Our only other case was Linda Agostini, Pajama Girl, here in
1: Victoria. We say Linda Agostini, but we don't really know. But that's the... That's the leading. That's the leading theory. Yeah. So check that one out after you listen to this.
0: Our two John Does today were both found on train tracks, which both come with a leading theory of suicide. Each year in Australia, between 150 and 200 people die as a result of railway suicides. This rate has been steadily increasing since 2002, and it's estimated that these deaths cost the economy around $1 billion every year and cost our communities far more than that. Often described to passengers as, quote, an incident on the tracks, These deaths take months to recover from. Police need to contact families, the coroner needs to investigate, and drivers need counseling. But when these people aren't carrying any identification and can't be identified through other means, it can take decades for these deaths to be solved. And some will remain a mystery forever. This is the case with the deaths of two men, 10 years apart and on opposite sides of the country. Known simply as the Pakenham Man, and the Bursewood Man. These two have changed the way we investigate unidentified persons and have been the catalyst for the development of national infrastructure to reunite unidentified victims with their families. At around 9.15 p.m. on the 14th of August, 2008, a man stepped off the platform onto the railway tracks at Pakenham Railway Station in Melbourne's southeast. The man was standing in front of the stationary train at the station. However, he was out of the driver's line of vision. As the train pulled away from the station, the man was struck down, unbeknownst to the driver. The injured man remained on the tracks of Pakenham Station and about 10 minutes later was struck again by another train. This time, the train driver realized what had happened and called emergency services to report the incident. Sadly, the man had been killed in the accident. Police searched the man for any identification or personal belongings which might have told them who he was but found nothing. The only clue they had as to his identity was the jacket he was wearing. The navy and red quarter zip jacket featured a logo which read Valley Statesman Rugby League, which they traced back to a rugby league football club in the ACT. However, no one at the club recognized the man. This inquiry did reveal that the Pakenham man was not the original owner of the jacket. Instead, it belonged to a former club member. This man was working as a construction worker in Melbourne and told investigators that he had discarded the jacket in a bin in either Doncaster, Pakenham, or somewhere in the Inner East in the months prior to the death of the Pakenham man. So this lead very quickly dried up. Police had produced an identicate image of the man and had released it along with a description of the man to the media in the hopes that someone from the community would come forward with more information. It's estimated that the man was between 20 and 30 years old, of Indian appearance and around 170 centimeters tall. From the identical image, we can tell that the man had short dark hair and dark facial hair. This description and public appeal failed to provide the police with any information and the investigation was once again brought to
1: a halt. Police then looked at the CCTV footage from the previous train to have stopped at the station just before the man jumped from the platform to the tracks and managed to find the man on one of the carriages just moments prior to the first accident. The man is wearing the navy jacket, dark coloured pants and white sneakers, but he doesn't have any belongings with him. He appears relatively kempt, but his behaviour on the train seems to indicate that he is distressed. He is pacing the carriage, scratching his head with both hands, before sitting down with his head in his hands, facing away from the camera. To me, it looks like he has his hands over his mouth and it seems like he's crying or breathing erratically, but I can't be sure as he's facing away. Using the CCTV footage from the train. Police were able to track the man's movements through other CCTV cameras in the area and managed to ascertain where he was and what he was doing in the previous hour, but didn't release these details. Instead, they provided a short snippet of the CCTV from the train carriage to the public, but this didn't give them any leads. With all efforts to gather information from the local community exhausted, investigators wondered if the man was from overseas and wasn't known to many, if any, people in the area. They checked immigration records from the time that they estimated he had arrived in the country and focused on people who had overstayed their visa, a potential reason for his distress. This avenue of investigation produced a list of 294 names belonging to men who had arrived from India prior to the incident and had since become unlawful citizens, meaning their visas had expired, and whose whereabouts were unknown. Despite this extensive list, the Pakenham man remains unidentified to this day. A decade earlier, in Perth, Western Australia, a man was walking alone along the Armadale train line late into the night of Saturday, March 7th, 1998. The man was walking between Burswood Station and Victoria Park Station, near Crown Casino in Inner Perth, at around 11.20pm, when he was struck by a train. It's difficult to tell why the man had been on the tracks – he could have been trying to get home from a night in town – and when there were no trains, he set off on foot along the tracks to find his way. Or, potentially, he had been walking on the tracks with the intention of being struck by a train. Much like the Pakenham man, the Burswood man was not carrying any identification. Without any CCTV in the area in 1998, police issued a description to the media in the hope that a member of the public would be able to identify the unknown man. The man was described as being fair-skinned, with hazel eyes and ginger or blonde hair which was balding. He was of slim to medium build and between 170 and 175 centimetres tall. For some reason, investigators weren't able to get an accurate estimate on his age, but placed him somewhere between 20 and 40. This wide range definitely made it difficult for the public to recognise the man. At the time of the accident, he had been wearing a green and blue business shirt, green trousers, a brown belt, and black Rivers brand shoes. Do you have Rivers in New Zealand? No. Rivers is like a department store, mainly for clothing. Definitely on the like budget end. Not extremely budget, but it's trademark thing that it does is that it's about five years behind (laughs) anything fashionable. I don't know. This fit doesn't sound that bad. It's something. It's a very arty outfit. Mm. Interesting. That's true. With no information from the public... Police made DNA and fingerprint inquiries with Interpol, hypothesizing that the man may have been from overseas. These inquiries also came up with nothing. Senior Constable Jen Robinson was one of the officers working on the case, and she took a particular interest in the unidentified man. She was perplexed as to how there was no one who recognized the man or that no one had reported him missing. She says, quote, Every police officer has a couple of cases in their career that they can't let go of, and this is one of them.
0: Despite their lines of inquiry coming up empty so far, Constable Robinson was determined to find out who the Burswood man was and began to think outside the box. She investigated the labels on his clothes, which indicated that he may possibly have been a
1: traveller from New Zealand. You don't have rivers in New Zealand, so where (laughs) did Constable Robinson get that? Okay, don't quote me. I don't think we have rivers. You but don't strike me as a Rivers <laughs> shopper, so potentially base. you just don't know about it. Maybe it shot down. Maybe it did. Is it still open here? We have one in Rockhampton. Right. From memory. I think it's still open there. Somehow. Mm. Yeah. I don't know what else you could be wearing that would indicate
0: you're from New Zealand. i trying to think of some New Zealand brands. We don't really have our own brands. Must have been like a, a niche boutique. Oh, I'll claim that fit. Yeah, okay. New Zealand man fit. It is a New Zealand man fit. Cool dude. <laughs> Cool dude, yeah. yeah. She developed a theory that the man was from overseas, likely New Zealand, and that he had spent Saturday night gambling at nearby Crown Casino. She thinks he potentially lost a lot of his money and had become dejected, leading him to walk along the tracks. However, this is purely speculation.
1: I've had a few thoughts about this theory since writing this. Mm. And firstly, if he'd been at the casino in Perth and lost a lot of money, Potentially, would someone working the tables have remembered him? Maybe it was purely at a poker machine. Maybe. One of those. Uh, what are they? The Slot slots. Machines. Pokies. Pokies. The pokies. My second thought is that if you were at the casino, you'd need your wallet. He,
0: he threw it in a he must fit have,
1: of dejection. Yeah. He must have either not had it and not been at the casino, or he'd gotten rid of it for some reason. Hmm. Just something to think about. Not a roast on Constable Robinson, but Mm. I love how
0: we were like, oh, she began to think outside the box. And she was like, maybe he's from New Zealand. Yeah. The next (laughs) closest country to Australia. Yeah. And then
1: she was like, get this. Maybe he was at the casino. Go on anymore. Maybe he was at the casino 200 meters away. A few people on the internet have also theorized that he was from South Africa. Okay. Mainly because there is a large diaspora of South African people in Western Australia. Okay. So, and also his appearance could be from South Africa, a white South African. Yes. I think that's low-key more likely.
0: Than New Zealand. Yeah. You think, like, he would have some connections or, like, he'd come traveling from New Zealand. It's so close. Like, mm. and the culture's not that different. Yeah. Surely he would have met some people, made some friends. and Yeah. But maybe, I don't know. Possibly not, but yeah, I think, like, maybe South Africa or somewhere further, Mm. with less roots here in Australia and all that.
1: Yeah, less English speaking in South Africa as well. Yeah, possibly.
0: But that means he would have had to take his passport to the
1: casino as Mm. the ID. That's so true. (laughs) Same with New Zealand, though. Yeah. Constable Robinson. Unless he'd quickly gone to Australia Post, got his proof of age. Got his key pass. His key pass. Isn't your key pass expired? No, next year. Oh, thank God. Hmm.
0: Interesting, interesting. The Bursword Man was also featured on an episode of Australia's Most Wanted, a national television program, hoping that this might gain some interest from around the country, but no information surfaced that could identify the man. Like the Pakenham Man, the Bursword Man also remains unidentified. So, what happens when someone is found but cannot be identified? Seemingly, no one is missing them, which
1: just seems kind of impossible living in today's society. There's definitely people who are less connected with the community, Mm. but most people have at least one connection.
0: It would be very hard now to be, like, completely
1: undocumented. Yeah.
0: Still happens. Mm. Investigators ask themselves this question as well regularly when it comes to the more than 500 sets of human remains that are sitting in morgues and laboratories around the country. These are on top of the bodies which have already been buried in unmarked graves and cemeteries, after testing is completed and any mandatory waiting period has passed, usually around six months to a year. The Pakenham man spent four years in the mortuary before the authorities were faced with a decision to either keep his body refrigerated in the morgue or bury him in an unmarked grave. Between March 14th and April 4th, 2012, the Pakenham man was buried in Melbourne Springvale Botanical Cemetery, which features a section of unidentified persons. There are no headstones in this part of the cemetery. Instead, there is a large rock nearby where people can leave flowers and pay their respects to the group of unknown people who are buried there. The Burswood man was buried in 1999, the year following his death, but Constable Robinson had to petition the coroner to allow the funeral because the laws in Western Australia at the time required a person to be identified before they can be buried. She arranged the funeral herself because there was nobody else to do it and because she had become so attached to the case. While the remains of the two men in these cases were found in a condition that gave investigators a number of clues, this isn't always the case. In 2006, a skeleton was found in the Dandenong Ranges in the southeast of Melbourne. There was some clothing associated with the skeleton, but aside from this, there was no identifying clues as to who the skeleton belonged to. After the skeleton was determined to be male, He was dubbed the Purple Scarf Man after the Purple Scarf he was found with, and he was taken to the Victorian Institute of Forensic Investigation in Melbourne, where Dr. Soran Blau worked to establish the man's identity. From the skeletal remains, Dr. Blau was able to determine the height, ethnicity, and age bracket of the man, but despite this, the Purple Scarf Man has never been matched to a missing person. During the process, Dr. Blau may have been able to record a number of identifying characteristics including dental work, tattoos, distinctive skin marks, or a full DNA profile. She says that it's a common misconception that with these things, people are easy to identify. But the reality is that these findings are only of any use when they can be matched with information provided by friends or relatives, dental records, or DNA collected from personal items. In some instances, remains may have been found far away from where that person lived. Further, the remains may have decomposed to the extent that only a skeleton remains, and even worse, some may have been so tampered with either by their killer or by natural processes that only one fragment of bone is found. Because policing is a matter for the individual states and territories, a family may have presented DNA which links to a person across the country, but the connection is unable to be made.
1: In 2016, after repeated campaigning by forensic scientists and investigators working on these cold cases, it was announced that a national database of missing persons would be created to combine records kept by the states and territories to assist in solving mysteries just like the Pakenham and Burswood men. Known as the National Missing Persons and Victims System, the database contains entries which list missing people as well as unidentified human remains. As of 2019, there were almost 3,000 entries on the database. In 2020, This program expanded to include a dedicated database for DNA records, the National DNA Program for Unidentified and Missing Persons. Around $3.6 million was invested into this program, and it was directly funded by the Proceeds of Crime Act, which takes money and assets that are seized from criminal activity and invests those funds into programs which improve the lives of Australians. So if you've ever wondered what happens to all those Rolexes and fancy cars, now you know.
0: They don't get returned to where they came from?
1: No, this is like if you made a heap of money and bought a Lamborghini. Oh. Yeah, 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 yeah. I
0: thought, like, I was like, someone stole a Rolex no. and now it's going to the proceeds of crime act.
1: That would be returned. But if it couldn't be returned, eventually there would be some kind of limitation where they would just sell it as well.
0: I see what you mean. But,
1: yeah, you can also, like, you can buy, did you know you can buy these things through state auctions? Yeah, yeah. How fun. I look at those all the time. The, like, jewellery on there is so, like, gaudy and, like, just so over the top. I love it. I'd never wear it, but I love looking at it. The first step for this DNA program was conducting an audit of all the existing human remains and entering any DNA metadata into the program so that samples presented in the future could be linked to the remains currently either in storage or in a burial site. The program also incorporated the use of kinship matching for DNA data, meaning they could link the DNA profiles of unidentified remains with relatives of long-term missing persons, where they consent to DNA collection. This kind of genetic matching is just one forensic technique that scientists use in the identification of human remains. The ability for forensic techniques to uncover information about an unidentified person has increased rapidly in the last 10 years and has given investigators greater tools to link remains to a missing person report. Now, a fuller picture of a person's appearance can be gained just from skeletal remains, where some DNA is also available. Using DNA phenotyping, DNA specialists can search for DNA markers that can be used to estimate someone's ancestral origin and can give a picture of their hair, eye, and skin color. Another method is craniofacial reconstruction which is where forensic artists approximate what a person's facial features would look like by reconstructing the soft tissues, either by sculptural or computerized methods. This is assisted by DNA phenotyping, which allows surface details to be added to the reconstruction, including skin pigmentation and eye color. Even more interesting is that these genetic markers can also be used to develop a DNA profile, which can then be matched to potential relatives of the unidentified individual. To narrow down potential matches, genetic genealogists use publicly available records, such as birth records or newspaper archives, to build potential family trees using these matches. This allows them to narrow the unidentified person to a specific region or family. Despite these significant advances in technology, the identities of both the Packenham and Burswood men remain unsolved. Investigators have launched renewed public campaigns to identify the two men, and have repeatedly expressed perplexity that the cases remain unsolved. Detective Senior Constable Mick Vander Hayden, who is still working on the case of the Pakenham man, spoke out in 2017, saying that he's sure someone in the community knows who the man is. He has said, quote, This man would have had a family. He would have been someone's son. He could have been a brother, a father, an uncle, or a friend. I have no doubt that his family would dearly love to know what has happened to their loved one, and we would like to identify this man and bring some closure for the family. As for the Burrswood man, Constable Robinson, who has been working on the case for more than 20 years now, says that she is convinced there is someone in Perth or Western Australia who knows who the man is. She says, quote, There has to be a connection here. Someone here will be the conduit to finding the family. I certainly hope I can find the family before I retire. Both cases remain open, and anyone who believes they may have information is urged to contact Crimestoppers on 1-800-333-000. In terms of preventing railway suicides, research from the Australian National University suggests that environmental factors such as lighting, noise levels, music, smells, and signage at train stations can act as sensory cues which influence behaviour. With this in mind, changing some of the physical infrastructure at train stations can help, but it's a holistic approach that's going to be crucial in preventing these deaths. Fair suggestion. All the train stations around here are jail. They're very like, um, what's that word? Like a dungeon. defensive architecture. Is that the word? Yeah. Like very inhospitable. Oh yeah. Not nice. The light. It's like weird light colors. Yeah. Like they're just, just built things.
0: like massive public toilets.
1: <laughs> yeah. There's really long public toilets. Yeah.
0: No, with no toilets. Maybe yeah. One. You know? Yeah. Like the older PTV Mm. ones here. Not the newer ones, not the big ones. Yeah. But
1: like... Like the one really near our our house. Yeah. Our local one. Prison.
0: Yeah, I would not want to sit there for longer than 20 minutes. No.
1: Especially at night. Yeah. Not even the cute coloured lights and the cute graffiti that says everything will be okay, that the, the local residents have clearly commissioned can make that any better.
0: I think it's interesting that these kinds of cases maybe not here, but at least overseas, where they're more prolific, they have these, like, whole communities behind them, where people really care about, like, these unidentified people. Really? Yeah, like, at least as I was watching this documentary in America, where there's, like, yeah, this group of people who, like, congregate and, like, meet about this, and this man who leads it, he spends so much time, like, building these composite, you know images of what they might have looked like just spending so much time which like makes sense because I guess in a way you know no one has stepped up to claim this person as someone from their family or someone they knew so in a way I feel like it gets people to feel like how can this person not have had anyone when they were alive
1: yeah it definitely does like it did for Constable Robinson like it definitely appeals to some kind of like element of our human nature and our desire for community that we do feel bad when you can see that someone has been so, I guess, extricated from the community Yeah, that there's no one who's willing to stand up and be like, I know I know that person or I knew that person. Yeah. Overall, these two cases are quite sad because while it isn't confirmed, there's obviously a lot of indicators that suggest they died as a result of suicide. And then they sort of were never able to be identified and, and given that proper, I guess, like ceremony of grief. I guess in going some way to explain potentially why they're unidentified, I suppose people who are struggling with mental health, often a lot of the co-indicators of that can lead to someone becoming very isolated and not wanting to reach out and be present or be accepted in the community. Does that make sense? Yeah. I feel like it's more
0: common than not than like some families have no track of where their adult children are or yeah. what they're doing
1: or they haven't heard from them
0: in a few
1: months, a couple yeah, of years. That's very true. I feel like we, like, obviously talk to our families relatively often. Um, often, yeah. yeah. So, but you're so right. Like, there's some people that they've had a falling out with their family. They don't talk anymore. Yeah. You, like, you have that happen. You fall out with your friends. You move to a different country. Mm. And then suddenly no one on this planet, like... Really knows who you are. Or, like, will check up. Mm, checking up. That's the key. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like that touches on what they were going for at ANU with their holistic approach to preventing railway suicides. Yeah, it's not about changing the train stations. I don't know if that's the main issue here. Mm. Yeah, I think, obviously, and it has improved, I suppose, in the last two years, but like access to mental health services, access to housing support, access to appropriate welfare, all things that are very important, access to proper medical treatment. Some people can be so afraid to go to the doctor or to go to the hospital. Mm -hmm. Yeah, all of these are things which could prevent a lot of these deaths. Yeah. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you haven't left us a review yet, we're still waiting. I'm still waiting from last week. From last two weeks. I know you all heard me ask for a review we so we have had one. Oh yeah new one thank you annie yes my friend
0: <laughs> which is just as just as valuable of yes
1: course. of course
0: but we know there's more than just our friends out there or is there
1: maybe there oh,
0: isn't <laughs> anyone in the void <laughs> who doesn't know us
1: sometimes it does feel like we're talking to the void
0: yeah anyway yeah go on say something go on yeah come on
1: <laughs> all right all right bye bye